It's eight minutes past the hour for the Faith Radio Network. I'm Austin Hill, Bill English, publisher of BibleandBusiness.com, in studio with us. Let's talk about money. Scripturally speaking, where do you start, Bill English, uh, when uh, presenting a, a, a biblical message about uh, financial management with a business or a nonprofit? Well, where I start is that uh, there's there's always two sides to the ledger, right? There's expenses and then there's income. And so uh, managing both sides is very important. Managing the income side, I think, is a lot more difficult than managing the expense side. And in fact, I would I would think if you were to line up 10 managers and ask them to manage expenses, probably eight or nine of them could do it reasonably well. But mm-hmm. if you were to line up those same 10 and say, why don't you manage the income, I think maybe only one or two of them would be able to do that in a reasonable fashion. So whether you're whether you're um, an individual running a household or whether you're a leader of a nonprofit or a for-profit business, managing the income side is actually more important, in my estimation, than managing the expenses. Now, the reasons for the difficulty of managing income uh, may seem quite obvious, but um, um, there's probably some non so uh, not so obvious reasons why managing income are challenging for business owners. What are your thoughts on that? Well, managing income is a lot more about uh, relationships and influence rather than just making decisions about which bills to pay. So when you're managing expenses and you have some money to cover those expenses, the management is relatively easy. You just pay the bills and you're done. If you have too many expenses, you simply make a decision to not spend as much money. You can't force somebody to give you money in our economy. Um, so uh, managing the income is a lot more about building influence with your income sources, building relationships with those income sources, and then making sure that what you're giving them, whether it's labor or products or whatever, is something that they're willing to pay for and give money back to you. Now, for the the entrepreneur, or maybe it's a, a nonprofit ministry leader, but they're saying, I've got something people need. I've got a product. I've got a service. I've got an idea, whatever <laughs> it is. People just need this, and I know that they need this, and they should just, you know, they should buy it or they should contribute or what have you. You're already chuckling because I'm sure you've heard this before. What do you say to that individual to get them more focused on the needs of others, shall we say? Well, you know, have, have you ever met an entrepreneur who didn't think that his or her product or service <laughs> was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Right. Yeah, that's, <laughs> really. That's why I stated that way. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it seems to me that you have to be asking the customer what they want and what they're willing to pay for, and can you build a product or a service to meet their need? That's really the crux of the matter. I mean, you have to talk to the people that you're trying to sell the product or service to. If you're a nonprofit, you have to talk to the donors and find out what they're interested in and see if their passion that God has given to them aligns with the passion that he's given to you mm-hmm. and, and the ministry and such. So it's in a nonprofit world, it's the knitting of the hearts together by the Holy Spirit in, in a common bond of ministry. In for-profit business, it's a little bit less of that, and it's a little bit more of let's just find out what the customer needs, build products and services that meet those needs at a price point that they're willing to pay for. Do you think it's helpful to uh, to uh, think in terms of I need to solve a problem for this person in order for them to become a customer? Is it is, is it too narrow to think of it as problem solving, or is that a good starting place? Do you think? No, I think that's a great starting place. Actually, I think you've hit the nail on the head of what we talk to the customer about, and that is what is your pain and how what can we do to help solve it? And if you're in a ministry, what is life's greatest pain? 
You know, mm-hmm. our, our greatest, just, just to speak globally for a moment, our greatest pain in life comes from relationships. And our greatest joys in life come from relationships as well, which is why a relationship with Jesus Christ, a personal relationship with him, is so vitally important to eliminating life's major pain and, and giving you a great joy that you can't have otherwise. Yeah. Bill English, publisher of BibleandBusiness.com. He's in studio with us as we talk about uh, managing income, managing finances in the bigger picture. Uh, but uh, the income side of the ledger, so to speak, is what we're focusing on here on the program. So you've written out what you refer to as the decision-making matrix. And that's I love that uh, terminology in that, that category. But what is the decision-making met- matrix as you see it? Well, I, I, I wrote this particular part of the post from a for-profit business standpoint. So mm-hmm. uh, forgive me if if, uh, if this doesn't apply to everybody who's listening. But, yeah, you know, there's really only so many things you can do to grow top-line revenue in a business. You can either sell more of the same products and services to the same customers, right? Or you can sell more of the same products and services to new customers. And then you can flip it around, sell new products and services to the same customers or sell the new products and services to new customers. But what a lot of business owners don't look at is that they can also grow through acquisition, either uh, maybe acquire a competitor to reduce their competition or acquire a non-competitor to enter a new market and gain new customers that way. So there's a there's a variety of ways, and each of those have a different strategy underlying them as to how you are successful implementing one of those decision matrix. Mm-hmm. But you can't do it all at the same time. You have to pick one and go for it. Uh, among that that array of, of uh, options in the matrix, they're only one at a time is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Businesses, unless they're really large, Businesses that try to do two or more at the same time are probably not going to do either very well because mm-hmm. it's going to require a lot of cycles and upfront investment before you start to see a return on that investment. Most small businesses just don't have the cash to do that. Right. All right. When we come back, we need to take a quick break. When we continue, let's talk about uh, some of the ways in which this wisdom applies to churches. I mean, churches, local community churches, oftentimes define their focus. We're trying to reach this demographic and uh-huh. provide this kind of service or what have you. Uh, you're a man of the church. You're a theologian as well as an entrepreneur. Let's talk about that when we come back. Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. In the studio with us, 15 past the hour from the Faith Radio Network. I'm Austin Hill. Seventeen past the hour from the Faith Radio Network. I'm Austin Hill. Bill English, publisher of BibleandBusiness.com, is in studio with us. Um, ostensibly talking about fin- uh, managing your finances in a business. But, mm-hmm. uh, Bill, you have said that, uh, indeed, there there are some applications of these ideas to churches. They may not be obvious. It may not be a direct application, but uh, there is an application nonetheless. I, I certainly think you're on to something here. Where, where do you start with that? Well, I think uh, for a church, because uh, I wrestled with this, you know, businesses have products and services that they sell to uh, other businesses or uh, or, in, or individuals, but mm-hmm. uh, churches. If I if I looked at it from a product perspective, I'm not trying to be crass or disrespectful, but if I look at it from a product perspective, 
It seems to me that churches have two core products. One is the message of the church, and the other is the service of the church uh, to those both inside and outside of the church. Those seem to me to be the two core products, if I can put it that way, of of any church. And so what you want to have uh, in in terms of the message, you want to have message clarity, you want to have boldness in preaching, and yet on the service side, you want to have humility and service, you want to have love and respect for every person that you come into contact with, whether you agree with them or not, whether they agree with you or not. And everything that you do needs to be bathed in prayer. Churches still have to manage income, but they have to manage it differently. I think they have to be faithful to what God has called them to. And then there is an an additional element of trust because they're not out actively selling a product. Uh, They have to just be faithful to their call and trust that the Lord will bring uh, members and donors in to supply the financial resources necessary to fulfill that call. Mm-hmm. Now, some churches actively engage, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but they actively engage in what they would call marketing. What do you make of that? You know, I, I have mixed feelings about that. I have to tell you, I have mixed feelings. We have uh, some here in the Twin Cities. You know, I live here in the Twin Cities, and we have some new churches up in my town, and they've got nice graphics, and they've got kind of their tagline, and they're positioning themselves. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I there's something I can't put my finger on it, but there's something about that that bothers me, and I don't know what it. I've never been able to articulate it, but it just seems to me that if the church were simply to be the church, to lift up the name of Jesus, proclaim Him as Lord and Savior, and serve the lost and the poor the way that we're supposed to, and then get on our knees and pray like we rarely do in our evangelical churches anymore, I think the marketing would take care of itself. I really do. Yeah. Interesting. I, I will tell you that uh, one of the, uh, and I appreciate the fact that you wrestle with that and you're not so quick to respond uh, with a yes or no or it's good or bad or what have you. I will tell you that when I first began hosting this program, which I'm coming up on my one year anniversary, actually. but Yeah, congratulations, th- by the way. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I think it was in the second month, actually, that I was hosting this program. Uh, I interviewed a gentleman. I can't tell you who it was. I'm sure we still still got a blog post I wrote about him on our uh, website at MyFaithRadio.com. <laughs> But this gentleman had written a book about uh, churches competing against each other. And he described the scenario, best as I could tell. I mean, this was a very true story. Uh, but um, he was the pastor of a local church in, you know, anywhere USA, uh, some, some suburban region of the country. And uh, some folks came in and uh, established a new church in town. They managed to get a hold of... I guess some sort of directory or a roster of all the regular attendees of the church that he pastored. And then they literally, uh, the new church in town did direct mail pieces. Are you serious? To, oh, to, yes, to the regular attendees of the church that he pastored and, you know, sought to steal away the congregation or what have you. And, uh, he was, he was really kind of downplaying saying, you know, this marketing of the church is really distasteful. I said, that's not marketing. That's guerrilla marketing. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> That is over the top, for that's, heaven's sake. That's sense. a hostile takeover. <laughs> well, it is. Forget the merger. My goodness. Uh, but but seriously, um, when you say when when you wrestle with this issue of marketing, let's talk some more about that. Is it inappropriate to believe, in the interest of of getting our church message out to 
people in the neighborhoods uh, nearby who might not otherwise, you know, even take a second look at the building where we meet or what have you, is it inappropriate to, I don't know, do direct mail in that regard, come you know, to our Easter service, <clears throat> come to our summer program, that kind of stuff? And, and see, the part that I wrestle with is that in this culture, how do you reach people? You reach them through marketing. You're not going to go mm-hmm. door to door. That's not, that's frowned upon. And, you know, there's a reason Fuller Brush went out of business, right? So, um, or maybe they didn't go out of business. I, I don't know that. But uh, the, you, you don't go door to door. There are marketing tactics that are acceptable ways to communicate a message to a mass audience. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, or fortunately, it's how our culture is, it's through marketing. I just, <clears throat> I just have a problem, I guess, in some of the marketing pieces. Some of the claims are kind of over the top. And uh, I would rather see a church become known for its love and its faithfulness to God and its love for the poor and, and the righteous and holy living rather than that they have a slick marketing campaign and they know how to draw people to a high school gymnasium on Sunday mornings. Mm-hmm. You wrote recently that you believe churches and church leaders, and by that I presume you mean clergy, but also church elders and, and laity yeah. leaders as well. Yeah. You're right. Church leaders need a desperateness for God that we have not had in a long time. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah, like, you know, I got this from uh, Steve Loopstra, who's now in Brazil. Um, <clears throat> there is there. We are a very. Com- we, I believe. I believe, and this is just me talking now. Um, I believe that most of the churches, evangelical churches in America, are very comfortable. And I believe that uh, we lack a desperateness for God because most of our needs, in fact, almost all of our needs are met on a regular basis. And so we're comfortable. We have nice, convenient lives. And uh, I think it shows up in the fact that if you were to try to hold a prayer meeting on a Wednesday or a Thursday night, you might get five or ten people there, and that's about it, out of a church of 700 or 1,000. There just is not this desperateness for Jesus Christ, this this overriding thing where we want to know Jesus more than anything else. I think Paul's uh, admonition in, in Philippians 3 where he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, that there's a desperateness underneath there that I think is lacking in uh, in many evangelicals today. And I say that about myself, too. I put myself in that category. I'm not preaching at you. I am I am simply making an observation about myself and evangelicals. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you on that. The the two examples as as you describe this, I'm saying yes, that matches with my experience really for all of my life. Two, um, I guess, two exceptions to that: uh, the hours and days and months following September 11, 2001. Right, churches were full. Weekday prayer <clears throat> sessions couldn't find a, a you know space to park in the parking lot. That kind of thing. Um, uh, at, a, at a time of national crisis and great fear, uh, that was different. And one of the great blessings of my life as a child, I grew up in a uh, an immigrant community as a very young child after the fall of Saigon, where a, a huge influx of Vietnamese immigrants came into the United States of America. It was in Southern California, and the little church where my parents took uh, took me to, as young as you know, third fourth grade. Uh, in the off hours, our church rented space to a Vietnamese Christian church, mm-hmm. and those people would, f- you know, flock uh, to uh, the facility, the church building, and spend hours literally prostrate on the floor, praying out loud, thanking God for their new home. And yeah. that was that really made an impression on me. Yeah. And they prayed for the United States of America. Yeah, and, you go you uh, go over to the persecuted countries, and there is a qualitative difference in their desperateness for God. 
than what we have here. And I don't know how long God is going to let our evangelical church here in America, and again, I put myself in this camp, I don't know how long he's going to let us be what I consider to be relatively lukewarm. I just don't know how long that's going to go on. Bill English, uh, some thoughts on uh, from his website, actually, BibleandBusiness.com. Ostensibly, we start off talking about managing income <laughs> for businesses, but uh, here we are, leading to a, uh, a profound point on uh, what really matters in churches. I love the fact that we can have these discussions. Yeah, Thank me you too. I, I just love Wednesday mornings. So. I, uh, always good to see you. Thank you. you bet, Boy, that you. is a huge coffee cup you brought in here, too. I didn't know those. I thought those were made illegal. That's so huge. Well, this is the large. This is the large right here. So. Oh, that's like quadruple grande or something. <laughs> anyway, have a great day. Good hey, to you see too. you. you too. Take care. Good to be with you. 26 past the hour from the Faith Radio Network. I'm Austin Hill. Still to come, raising narcissistic children? Are some people inadvertently doing that? Parenting experts John and Kendra Smiley fill in the details forthcoming.